Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And as usual, this is a Tuesday episode. So with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Good morning. So we are recording. I'll, I'll, I usually forget this, and Hugo does it, but I actually have it on top of mind today. We are recording from P&T Netwear. That is a bookstore and podcast studio at 180 Orchard Street between Houston and Stanton. Um, the thing that I'm really excited about is I last night found online, I'd never heard of this, but there's a website called theshopkeepers.com, uh, sharing the world's best shops. And they had a list of the global, the best new stores around the world in 2022. And there was one, two, three, six, ten of them. And P&T Network was one of them. And we had no idea that was happening. We didn't pitch it. Uh, these people just on their own said this is one of the ten coolest new stores to open up anywhere in the world in 2022. That's amazing. I mean, that's uh, that's just like, that's well... That speaks for itself. I don't even have to say. Yeah, anything. no, it's 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 great. And like, what I hope is, I also saw like there was something. Then I started googling P and T last night, like something in Japanese that I couldn't read. But like, I was like, if maybe that means we're starting to sort of permeate a little bit. And then there was something in Japanese. Yeah, probably. So that's good. It means that if in Japan there was something written about P and T where great, yeah. just let tourists, you know, know about it. So um, so maybe it feels like we're starting to enter the bloodstream a little bit. Well, I think that's for sure. And I also think, you know, the, the whole nature of bookstores is that people sort of form relationships with them. They're not just like, you know, it's not like the CVS, obviously. Like, yeah. it's it's like people develop, like they know people, they know what they're going to get there. They, they they sort of become part of people's lives. And that takes a little while, obviously. So Yeah. But it's happening. Yeah. Awesome. Um, Bradley, what are we talking about today? So we're going to do a few things. You're Sorry. checking your phone. What I was checking my phone because I, <laughs> the last thing we're going to talk about is is, is a, a book that, uh, and I was checking the author's name. But we are going to mainly talk about effective altruism. It is an idea that we've discussed on this podcast before, something that I'm pretty interested in and kind of helps impact how I uh, run my life, how I run my foundation, things like that. And obviously because of Sam Bankman-Fried, it's very much in the news these days. Um, we're done with that. Couple thoughts on China. It's also a good holiday theme. Effective altruism. altruism. Yeah. Well, altruism. For sure. Right. Um, season for altruism. Yeah. And then um, ending with uh, just some books and movies that that I liked. Okay. So let's start with effective altruism. I think what's a cool or cool a good way to start is why don't you just give a, a, a short summary of how you see the movement, what it is, um, what what's good about it, like what what um, yeah, so to, bring everybody kind of up to speed a little bit. To me, effective altruism is just maximizing the benefit of someone's dollar to help the most people possible with it. It attempts to quantify the value that can be derived from any particular type of spending, whether it's malaria nets or money for the arts or whatever it is. I don't think they like spending money on the they, arts. They much, don't. Right? And I think what what their formula basically shows is we should invest societally, people who want to give away money, um, in things that can yield the greatest tangible benefit for the poorest people or uh, things that can help prevent cataclysmic, uh, you know, population-destroying events. Uh, I, I don't necessarily share their views as to what the money should go to all of the time. I don't have a problem with it, but it's not where my money goes. Um, but generally speaking, you know, having worked in and around nonprofits a lot, both in government and, and politics and then in my businesses, um, most of them are pretty ineffective. Uh, most of them pretty much waste time and money and don't achieve all that much. And so the basic notion of saying this system, uh, despite everyone patting their back on for, for it, it's pretty broken and pretty inept, and we need to reevaluate it so that we take what we have and use it far more effectively. That appeals to me. 
Okay. And how does it, um, uh, what, are, what are the principles that guide you in particular as you're looking into your own giving that, like, that, are, that are either borrowed from uh, yeah. or, or well, influenced by, by uh, effective altruism or, or correcting for it? Well, so Arthur Brooks, who's a happiness scholar, um, he was the head of the American Enterprise Institute, a bunch of other stuff. He wrote a book last year that I actually didn't, or this year still, I guess, that I didn't really love, to be honest. Uh, I was excited about it and kind of disappointed. But he did lay out sort of these four categories for um, kind of how we evaluate kind of an inventory of our own moral actions, right? And it was sort of structural change, individual change, uh, community, and kind of sharing, learning, although I suspect that last part was just to bump up his own his own record on that stuff. Um, <laughs> and uh, when I was doing the ketamine therapy back in January, I actually did this inventory as part of my process to sort of, you know, open up sort of my brain to, to different concepts that I hadn't been able to kind of internalize before. And so I have a pretty good sense of, and I, and I update this document sometimes, so I have a pretty good sense of kind of where my time is going, my money is going, and where my focus is going, I don't know that anything that I'm doing would necessarily be endorsed by the effective altruism movement. And I actually think some things that I'm doing are more effective than what they're doing. Well, so for example, like let's use the most basic effective altruism um, uh, cause, which is like mosquito nets for yeah. communities that have uh, are at risk from malaria. Um, that's not something that you donate a lot of money to, if any. No. Um, so why why not? Like why if if that's like if that's pinpointed as the most um, pressing the most pressing need and the one where the most good can be done for the least input, um, why not give money there? Because one, it doesn't require me. Right. right. There are things, and we can get into it. That I the things that I fund and work on are things that are sort of uniquely somewhat suited to my interests and my skill sets. Mm -hmm. And in some, in some cases, like mobile voting, if I don't do it, nobody's going to, right. right? So that's number one. And number two is, what do you get out of it, right? So like in, in the articles that you and I were reading this weekend, one of the, maybe it was Will McCaskill or someone, one of the leaders. Let's say movement. who Will McCaskill is. Will I McCaskill is sort of the, the godfather. He's young. He's like 28, but the godfather. He's in his 30s now, but okay, he was 28. Effective altruism movement. He was once 28, just like <laughs> you and me, amazingly. Um, this is a total aside. But we were talking about this at dinner the other night. Um, do you know that, you probably do know this, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Amy Whitehouse, Kurt Cobain, and Jimi Hendrix all died at the age of 27? Yeah, yeah, that's All enough. 27. Yeah. And the funny thing was, it was uh, my Josh, my brother-in-law, we were doing this, and I was literally like, okay, I kept naming them, and he kept looking them up individually, and then we just kept laughing because it was all, and then we realized there's such a thing as the 27 Club, but we didn't know that. Right. So while we made so it past 28, the 27 club. and while Will McCaskill apparently did too, uh, a lot of musicians did not. Yeah. Um, they never made it to 28. So anyway, he, he, he's basically the guy that uh, has kind of in the modern era taken this notion of effective altruism and built it out into a movement. Um, he's an Oxford professor. He's created a bunch of different nonprofits. He's very good at kind of working rich people, rich men especially, to get them to support his causes and, and buy into his worldview. Did you see that great detail that he wanted to get his teeth? He had the gap taken out of his teeth. He has a, a front gap in his teeth because he read that like better looking people are better at fundraising. That was his... I didn't read that, that but it's interesting so because he also, I think, limits himself to... 26,000 pounds a year to live on. And look, that's admirable. If, if, if you make a lot more than that and, and you're, you're saying, I'm only going to spend this much myself and I'm give the rest away, I think that's great. Um, but I do wonder if within that 26,000 pounds, that, that, that teeth 
procedure was counted or uh, whether Maybe it was written off as a business funds. expense. Yeah, exactly. Well, they do have so, like catered vegan lunches and dinners yeah, and stuff. So, um, and they live, I think it's headquartered at some kind of like like old castle or uh, the, the, yeah, the, the details of it are look, kind of hilarious. People like nice things. No matter how <laughs> progressive they are, no matter how self-righteous they are, people, whether it's the New York Times or AOC or Bernie Sanders or the union movement or anything else, when it comes to their own lives, they like people nice like nice shit. That's human nature. Okay, so I cut you off because you were you. I was going to talk about Peter Singer, yeah, who is, right. is the ultimate godfather of this so, movement. So, Princeton professor, um, kind of figured out, or, or was was the first person to really talk about and write about this notion of really focusing your philanthropy, your charity, on the projects and ideas that will generate the greatest yield for the most number of people. Um, it's a really interesting theory. I don't like his books. I find them to be so self-righteous that I actually can't get through his work. Um, maybe but you've tried. would like it. I have tried. I, I finished one, started, I hated it, started another one, and said, I'm done with this guy. Um, <laughs> but I understand what he's talking about. Do we about. have his books here in the store? I hope not. <laughs> um, you know, we try not to have books that I explicitly didn't like. Uh, although the truth is I haven't gone through the entire inventory to see. Also, that's not the way the bookstore runs, right? It's not just like books you like and don't like, is it? No. Mm, no, it's not. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, the point is this. So the effect of altruism movement has gained steam in recent years. Wilma Caskell has become a very good kind of promoter of it. And a lot of Silicon Valley kind of tech billionaires like Dustin Moskovitz from... Um, from Facebook, uh, signed on to it, started putting a lot of money into it. Right. And to your point earlier, the malaria nets, it, it's really this. So Bill Gates has done more, certainly a lot more than the effective altruists, um, to, to stop malaria in Africa and all over the world. He has probably saved more lives than almost anyone ever, right? Um, that only happened because of his capitalism, because of Microsoft. And by the way, Gates now is seen as a sort of philanthropist, but he was a voracious you know, capitalist who was constantly getting in trouble for all kinds of anti-competitive behavior and, and things like that. Um, you know, he got sued by the Justice Department. So, but if Gates doesn't create Microsoft, one, the wealth that he then got from it led to saving all of these lives, and two, the wealth that let, came from it produced a huge amount of jobs and tax revenue and opportunities. So in many ways, the reason why people like me like effective altruism is it both helps you feel good about the things that you're doing and yet completely justifies capitalism and pretty much any legal way that you're making money. Okay, let's dig into uh, two of your of your the main pieces of your philanthropy. And I, I we've talked about both uh, mobile voting and hunger a lot. Um, so we're not going to go cover the entire landscape. But I want to start at the very beginning of, the, of both of those. Like yeah. when you first started thinking about it and maybe putting some money into it. Um, so let's start with mobile voting. Sure. Um, what, what's the actual origin story of that? Not not just the, the whole concept, but yeah, when you I'll, and I'll, sort I'll, of intersect I'll give you a timeline because the origin story is, is too long. But right. um, in the 15 years that I worked directly in government and politics, and keep in mind, I worked in federal government, state government, city government, the executive branch, the legislative branch. I worked at agencies. I ran campaigns. I feel like I've seen this system from every conceivable angle, even the judiciary. I'm a lawyer. Um, and the thing I took away from it is, is one simple fact. Every policy output is a result of a political input. As our listeners know, that is basically the thesis that drives this podcast, Tusk Holdings, what I teach, what I write, everything, right? So what I learned is if you want different policies, you want different outcomes, you got to make the politics line up. That was where I took away from my time in government. And where does mobile voting then well, so, intersect so, with I'll that? I'll get there. So okay. um, 
when we ran all the campaigns to legalize Uber, what I learned is even though people don't vote in most elections, certainly not like local primaries and things like that, when you make it really easy and when they actually care about the issue, they will advocate politically, right? A couple of million people over a period of a couple of years reached out to their elected officials and said, leave this thing alone. And as a result, we wanted to leave this thing alone, meaning Uber. Let let Uber stay. And we wanted every single market in this country by doing that. And so what that said to me is it's not that people are too apathetic to do anything. It's that if we don't make it convenient enough, they won't do it except in extreme circumstances, right? So that was, okay, well, Uber was, we were able to save Uber by letting people advocate from their phones what if you had technology that was a lot more secure that could lead to voting? So that was the okay. Let me ask you a question idea. right there. At what point did you see this as a philanthropy and not like a business opportunity or like something that that somebody else would take care oh. of and you'd support or like how did it become like a, a a major sort of a few things? So one is look, having been around government politics, I, I, the elections business is a terrible business, right? Like there's no one, even like I've talked to CEOs of companies and that they wish they weren't in that business, right? Like it's awful. So anyone who has half a brain when it comes to both politics and business knows that like there's no money to be made in voting systems and all of that shit, right? The, the margins are tiny, um, and it's a, it's a weird cyclical business and everything else. But I think, I forget what the year was, maybe 2015, I was, uh, when I kind of burst on the scene in tech, when I announced I had a venture capital fund and things like that, because we were the first and only to do it, there was sort of this big round of attention where I was speaking at all kinds of events. The first and only to do the sort of the, the regulatory yeah, plus Yeah, I have a, a basically combined regulation and technology. Right. right. Uh, and I think I was like interviewed on the main stage of TechCrunch Disrupt. And they asked me like, what other big things are you thinking about and working on? And I had been thinking about mobile voting, and I said it. And uh, you were not prepared. You didn't go up there thinking like this is no, my big chance. I wasn't to trying to make there. news. It was just more that like it, it made sense. And then once I said it, I said, "Okay, now we're doing this." Now look, it still took. So I hired Sheila Nix. You know, probably about a year later to come run uh, Tusk Philanthropies. But the first mobile voting election wasn't until March of 2018. It took us a couple of years to even get to a point where anybody would try it. And you knew it was philanthropy. You, you weren't going to say like, "I'm going to build a system and I'm going to I'm going to make it a business." No, right because, away. Be, definitely not. Because okay. one, um, again, it's a shitty business. Right. I, I tend not to invest. I don't even invest in GovTech out of my fund, with, with one exception. Right. right. So, or, and politics tech to me is a fucking joke. Um, so, anyone here who's doing thinking of going to politics tech, if you want to make money, don't go into that business. Um, So the reason to me was if every policy output is a result of political input, and if every district in this country is gerrymandered, which means the only election that matters 99% of the time is the primary, and if primary turnout is 10 to 20%, that means that politicians are effectively representing the will of that 10 to 20%, and especially in local elections and, and lower level offices, it tends to be the most left wing or right wing voters or special interests who can move votes and money in that primary. And as a result, the politicians are held hostage to those interests. Those interests don't want compromise. They don't want consensus. Um, they want purity and nothing else. So as a result, nothing can get done. Or if we have a legislature that is overwhelmingly one part or the other, they skew widely to the right or to the left right. as, as a result of it. But if you hang, I know, I know, but okay. if, if you had primary turnout that were 30, 40, 50 percent, um, 
the good news about politicians, who since they believe in nothing 90% of the time, <laughs> is they'll adapt to whatever they need to adapt to to stay in office, right? So if if their electorate becomes more mainstream, they become more mainstream. That's a great way to rate politicians, right? What percent, like what's the what's the core, right? So you just use the word 90, the term, the, the, term, the figure 90%. So some, let's say that's the mean. Ten percent is like shit they won't compromise on the real shit, right? Yeah, or or ten percent of them are willing to take pol- make political sacrifices to advance things they believe in. Right. Um, I think in in the fixer I wrote kind of a typography. We can go into it some other time because I don't remember off the top of my head. But if like the five types of politicians, right, and and kind of gave a percent. I think I gave a percentage. Did to you? Sort of I can't remember them. that part of it. Um, I have to go back. Yeah, and study we have the a Bible. copy. We're in the store. I guess we could grab it. But like, <laughs> but the point is, there are people. Mike Bloomberg certainly was willing to take political heads for things he believed in. Uh, my brother-in-law, Josh Gottheimer, certainly won't take political heads. I, you know, I, I know Barack. Obama well enough to know that he was at least sometimes um, willing to do that. For sure. right? So there are some people. So okay, let's um, let's. I'm going to ask one more question on mobile voting. Then we're going to go to hunger. Yeah. What's the first check you write for mobile voting? Uh, the people, the team. The right? team. So we you did, hired. People. We had to build a team. The first significant check that I wrote was to the state of West Virginia. It was it was through a nonprofit um, to pay for the cost of administering the first ever mobile voting election, which was for deployed military from two counties in West Virginia in the March 2018 primaries. But part of my argument as to how we can try this thing out is, look, I'll cover the cost so the taxpayers aren't out any money. So, you know, if, if you're an election official and you're willing to sort of try this, I'll make it really easy for you because I'll pick up the cost myself. And I ended up funding 21 different, you know, each, each election's a couple hundred thousand dollars. And I ended up funding 21 of those uh, around the country until I felt like we had proved the point that, that this idea can work. Okay. So just to summarize quickly, and then we're going to go to hun- uh, hunger, because uh, fitting this but, but into two, the— two, uh, let, let me make two points more about this. About okay. Because it's, it's in relation to effective altruism, right? Okay. Is, well, that's where I was going to go, but right. go ahead. One, um, structural change is really important. So the effective altruism movement, will look at it in the context of— uh, nuclear weapons, pandemics, they're very worried about artificial intelligence. I'm not quite as worried about that. Um, but I would say I don't see if, – if we agree with my premise and we want a government that can get shit done and we want to kind of save our democracy and country, I don't see any way to do it but mobile voting. And because I'm kind of the only person that I know of that had this weird mix of experiences in politics, in government, in tech, in venture, everything else, um, I'm kind of the only person that maybe sees it. And plus way. you're willing to take some shit. And, and I'm willing to take shit for it. And I've spent, you know, probably $15 million of my own money at this point in, in moving it forward. So I would argue that this is the most effective altruism because, A, I'm doing something where I get a lot of shit for it, even though all I'm trying to do is, is, is help save our country. B, I recognize that if I didn't do it, nobody else would. Um, and C... If this works, mobile voting in and of itself doesn't solve any societal problem, but because it changes the conditions to make it okay for politicians to work together, to compromise, to give in on different things, you now create a world where you can have solutions that actually pass through a legislature on climate change, education, healthcare, immigration, guns, you name it. And so to me, um, I don't know what Will McCaskill or Peter Singer would say about it, but I, I think this is along with what we do on hunger, in some ways, a, a better innovation or representation of effective altruism. Okay. So, um, very well said. Let's talk about hunger, and let's just limit it to, I mean, we don't have to limit it, but but let's let's zero in on, again, that, that sort of inspiration moment where you're like, okay, this is what I'm going to 
this is what I'm going to spend money on. This is how I'm going to do it. Yeah. So look, I have been involved in hunger for a long time. So I was a freshman in college at Penn. It was a soup kitchen uh, at a camp, at the, with the church at the campus kind of by 40th Street and Locust or something like that. Uh, and I started volunteering there, and I've done it ever since. Meals on Wheels, soup kitchens, just it's just something that I like to do. Um, when I started making money kind of even a little before Touch Strategies, because I, I did okay on the Bloomberg campaign, I started writing checks to things like the Food Bank of New York. It, for numbers, for me at the time, were really big numbers, like $10,000, right? And... Initially, I kind of, you know, once you write a check that size, they, they court you a little bit, right? So I got to know them. And you know what I concluded? They weren't that effective. They weren't that good. Uh, it was a lot of bullshit and a lot of process and a lot of bureaucracy and overhead. And what I decided is, you know, rather than trusting in them to be effective about it, I kind of thought about the basic premise of why I spent the first 15 years of my career in government in the first place. And it's that you can change and achieve things once in a while at an incredibly high, at scale, at an incredibly high level, and impact millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people's lives. And so, to me, rather than trying, so to government f- was the better way to go. In this rather case, than this, right, right? Rather than trying to feed one person at a time. And look, I still work at a soup kitchen. I do fund all of their operations. It, it gives me a certain amount of satisfaction, and I'm glad that I do it. But comparatively, if you were Will McCaskill, you would look at the money that I spend funding the, the common table soup kitchen on 16th Street and compare it to the money that we spend passing legislation in different states to increase government funding for programs like universal school meals, breakfast after the bell, SNAP for seniors, things like that. And the most, the, the greatest use by far, about $4 million of my money at this point, has unlocked about a billion and a half dollars in new government spending for hunger programs. And one thing that I guess I've been a little surprised about the more and more and more I learn about effective altruism is why they don't either endorse or see this in the sense of, yes, malaria nets, all that great. But if you can use your money to achieve political change and legislative change that then creates vast amount more money to go into solve a societal problem, I would argue that that's probably the best use of your time and resources. And so I think, look, we've talked about this before on the podcast, which is our hunger work is kind of a combination of politics and philanthropy, right? It works because hunger is actually not that hard of an issue to get stuff done on, but for the fact that the nonprofits that were doing it don't know what they're doing when it comes to politics, right? And so our view was if we brought in some professionalism, which is so we, we pick states and the campaigns that, that we want to try to run there, we give a grant to the local group. And then the main thing we do is we run the campaign. And not only do we do what Touch Strategies would do for a lot of money, but we pay for, I pay for the lobbyists, the pollsters, the PR, all the ads, all of that stuff. Um, and it's, it's a, we're running political campaigns effectively to achieve societal change, specifically around an issue of hunger, as opposed to usually it's about electing people who you then hope will do good things in office. So, look, there are some downsides to it. Um, you do take shit for just anything basically these days on the internet and i don't get the tax deductions people give you shit on the hunger campaign nah, once you know I, you get the like oh you're it, it was like the crazy far right like you're just giving away money to people who don't need it and they're t- wasting our dollars and all that shit you know it's 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 not nearly as vicious as the hunger stuff uh, as the voting stuff but um i sort of get the tax deductions because all the spending i'm doing is considered to be political spending and as a result it's not deductible. But I do think that if foundations and philanthropy said, let's use our resources to affect political change, not even meaning uh, candidates, 
but just legislation, and we're willing to sort of take the hits, and we're willing to forego the tax benefits, um, I, I think we could achieve, from the principle of effective altruism, vastly more than we do today. Are you able to do things on the hunger stuff where, okay, so a number of states have, have, have passed these 19, bills? 19. 19 states. Where you go and say, okay, so how is the money being spent? And are people f- being fed? And is the food yeah, is so, it being so spent wisely? I, I think at least for us, and this is fairly easy, programs like school meals work really well. Okay. Right. Uh, and they're known to work really well and they're actually pretty efficient. Look, is the nutritional value what you'd want it to be? No. I made a decision that I was going to focus on hunger, not nutrition. In a perfect world, you would do both. But right. I felt like there were people who were focused on nutrition who have a lot more money than I do. And I felt like they were missing the point. And uh-huh. it's, it's to give people food in the first place. Um, so we're investing in, in legislation to expand programs that are already proven to work really well. Um, I do think that if you were doing this on another issue, you would not only have to sort of evaluate the efficacy of using your money to try to affect political change in the first place, but then should you succeed, is that program even effective to begin with? Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, uh, let, let's broaden it out a little bit to the broader or the issue of effective altruism, because I'm curious... One of the things that that they've done in their movement is that there's this incredible amount of debate about what's right, this versus that versus that. And I'm curious, does that become almost like a problem in and of itself where there's like this intellectual exercise or do you think that's healthy or where do you... It, it mixed, right? So on one hand, that kind of analysis wasn't being done before. Um, and so that led to the creation of charities like GiveWell that do analyze, you know, sort of the actual efficacy uh, of different charities and help direct money to things that actually get shit done. So that that thought process is a very good thing. Is there a world where this all becomes intellectual masturbation and sort of patting, self-patting on the back for people from Oxford and Yale and whatever else? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the effective altruists have their own sort of foibles and, and pitfalls just like anyone else because guess what? They're human beings. <laughs> so how actively do you consider new uh, things to, to give to? Like, are you, obviously, because of your prominence, you get a lot of, uh, a lot of requests, I'm sure, yeah. a lot of people um, trying to get you to sign up for things. But w- so how do you just... Yeah, um, so there's a few things. So sometimes are we going to take up a cause, right? So May Day Health, where we're trying to make sure that women in red states have access to abortion through telemedicine by being able to see a, a medical professional uh, over their computer or their phone, and then the medication sent to them in the mail. That was a new cause that we took up, again, because I believe, and this one didn't require government per se, but I believe that the kind of my experience in politics and in tech, and especially as, a, as a, an investor who does invest quite a bit in the digital health sector, that we could affect change in a way that would be truly scalable and meaningful, a lot more so than these programs that try to like move women from one state to another to get an abortion. To me, that is non-scalable and, and not that impressive. So there are times where we actually pick up a cause itself. Um, I try to limit that because each one takes money and time away from from the other stuff. Look, I, you know, every year I still probably write 50 checks to, you know, different charities for, you know, five figures, four figures, five figures, sometimes six figures, um, because some friend of mine is, you know, involved with it or someone I know is being honored and I got to, I don't, I never go to the events, but I certainly buy <laughs> tables and a lot of stuff. Um, so or, the trust table's always empty? Uh, I think people on the staff go because okay. people like free drinks. I, I just don't ever go. Um, or things like Israel, right? I mean, there, there are causes that I care about that I give money to. So I still do it, but it, it's very subjective. It's very ad hoc. 
Um, and the reality is, because we get asked for money all the time, one of the great things about hunger is we're able to say to people, look, if we fund your thing, that's not going to hunger. You are taking food out of kids' mouths by asking me for money. Um, are you sure you want to do that? And usually that ends the conversation. Okay, so um, uh, last week I think we put you in charge of Nikki Haley's uh, um, Republican campaign. So this week I'm putting you in charge of um, you're the you're the sort of policy director for Will McCaskill and the effective altruism movement. Okay. And Will comes to you and he goes, "Oh God, we really freaking stepped in it with a Sam Bankman-Fried shit. Like we are, we are just like you know we are just in such trouble." What do we need to do to just make sure that we do not, like the movement does not go down with like FTX, with Sam Bankman-Fried? I think they just really have to sell the value proposition of it, right? So um, they, the, the movement itself helps navigate funds that do help a lot of people. Um, one thing in all the stuff that you and I were reading over the weekend is individual stories and anecdotes actually sell far better than statistics. Um, and so, yeah, is Sam Bankman-Fried a, a dickhead who, who probably set this movement <laughs> back? Absolutely. At the same time, um, at people today as we speak, um, their lives are being saved or improved because they're of dewarming, because of mosquito nets for malaria, because they can uh, operate on their eyesight and people aren't blind. So I think that you've got to more aggressively than ever tell these stories and basically make the case to reporters and to the public, like, yeah, you know, we were excited about this guy too because he seemed like he could really help produce a lot of resources for the stuff we care about. He turned out to be a false prophet, but... Here's what the money goes towards. It's no less valuable than it was before Sam One thing that struck me in reading some of those articles, um, look, since they were written before the Sam Bankman-Fried meltdown and, then, and now here we are, is how focused they were on, like, Will McCaskill as his personality. Like, he definitely put himself forward as this, like, quirky world saver with his, like... Oh, like yeah. I mean, look, and Is what, that a mistake at this point, though? It's, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not... I don't know if it's a mistake, but keep in mind... You know, Will McCaskill has a pretty good in the sense of he has set up this image and world for himself where he's just praised all day for how good he is and how smart he is and how virtuous he is. And the reality is that's the currency that works for him, whereas for someone else, it might be, you know, their investment banker and the, the thing that makes them feel good, uh, at least, you know, a temporary dopamine hit is buying a car or a vacation house or whatever it is. The reality is, and this was the other thing I want to talk about in effective altruism, is I'm not sure that anything is truly altruistic, right? So the things that we just talked about, are they good things for society? Absolutely. Do I do them because they make me feel good about myself? Yeah, right? So I have a set amount, not a set amount, I have a certain amount of money, and I could buy a lot of stupid shit with it, and I do buy plenty of stupid shit already, um, or I could try to use it to affect change in things that I think are important or that I have a specific you know, insight into. Um, and in doing that, I feel good about myself as a person. We've talked about the hedonic treadmill on this podcast before, which is... You know, buying stuff to make yourself feel good has a very short shelf life because, you know, the dopamine hit wears off and then all of a sudden you got to buy a bigger yacht, a bigger plane, whatever it is, and you get to a point where no amount of spending really makes a difference at all. Whereas um, if you're putting the money into things that you think are meaningful, and look, for me, it's hunger, it's voting. For some people, it's malaria. For some people, it's, it's opera, you know, whatever it is. Um, and that makes you feel good if the end quotient of life is happiness, Right. We have my view, one life, only there's an afterlife. I don't believe in reincarnation. This is it, and it's on you to make the most of it. 
and the main quotient is happiness. It's what produces maximum happiness. And all of the science says fulfillment and relationships. And so if you can generate the fulfillment part of it by using your money to do things that make you feel good about yourself, um, that's a really smart thing to do. Is it inherently altruistic? No. In fact, I used to, every morning when I pray, um, kind of review myself on the day before and say, like, what did I do the day before that was good, what was bad? And then on the good, I would try to sort of figure out what was truly altruistic as opposed to what was something that benefited me and, and like stuff for my kids didn't count, right? Because they're, they're part of me. Um, and you know what? On one hand, it probably prompted me to do more stuff. On the other hand, it may be fucking miserable. It was a <laughs> terrible way to live. Yeah. I mean, a, a horrible way to live. Just because if you had a bad day. Be, like... Because I was putting all of my self-worth and value on this score that I arbitrarily gave myself every single morning. And if I was feeling good about myself, it might be fine. But if I was feeling bad about it for any, it could be other, because I had a, uh, you know, my, my, had a fight with my kid or something's going wrong at the office or whatever it is. Then all of a sudden that spread to everything else. And, you know, you, you, you can't, I realize you can't live life just trying to like boil it all down to a number to decide win or loss, good or bad. I stopped doing it uh, at the beginning of this year and I have been much better off since. Um, let's pivot, hard pivot to China. Um, okay. So the, the, the one question I wanted to ask you, and it's, it's really pretty open-ended, but so the news last week was that um, there were these violent protests at, at, the, at, the, at the largest iPhone factory in China. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it didn't get a ton of coverage in part because it was the holidays and, and there wasn't a, like lots of information about it. Um, but it's a pretty kind of scary uh, you know, it feels like it feels like a like a portion of American history that's passed. You know, that you think of like the 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 big sort of labor movements here and the showdowns in like the twenties yeah. and the teens and and riots at you know steel plants and 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 the what, what's the security? What were they called? The Pinkertons? They would come in there and beat mm -hmm. the shit out of everybody. Um, so now this is happening far away from uh, from from the United States. It doesn't have quite the vivid quality that it once did. Um, is this something we should be worried about in terms of, um, is this, is this a, no, is this a, a good thing? Okay. I mean, look, at, at the end of the day, authoritarian, I was thinking about this over the weekend, authoritarian regimes always ultimately end. And in the world that we live in, where information travels so quickly, they end a lot faster. So yeah, you had the Greeks, the Romans, the Ottomans, and you had the European empires, the, the Spanish, the Portuguese, the French, the English, whoever else. Um, and they certainly had, you know, fairly kind of authoritarian systems of, of government. Some democracy worked in there, but not a lot, a lot of theocracy. Um, and they lasted for a while, but over the course Some of, say, the, of years. the last <laughs> 250 years or so, um, that's happening with, you know, overthrowing um, people who are authoritarian is happening with more and more frequency simply because people are able to see what the rest of the world is like and realize that their situation is wrong and unfair. And so, look, uh, Chinese workers protesting an iPhone plant will probably ultimately lead to better working conditions for them. That's a good thing, right? They should probably be paid more money. They should probably get more breaks. They should probably have safer facilities. You know, all of that. And then more broadly, you saw these protests over the weekend in China about uh, people uh, you know, against the, the lockdowns for COVID. Right. And what it said to me a little bit was like, look, we are right now looking at China as this sort of massive monolith that is the prime opponent of the United States right now. Kind of Putin and Russia is a bit of a sideshow, if anything. And these are the people to worry about. This is our competition. And whether it's military, economic, you know, 
ideological, whatever else, um, this is our sort of big opponent, and they should not be underestimated at all. But look, we have a fucked up democracy that achieves relatively little, but we have a system that basically still allows for trans- transfers of power and allows for people to express their, their views, right? In a world like China, where not only for, you don't have free and fair elections, but you literally can't speak at all, um, people don't stand for that. And then, so I think to me, yeah, we, we can game out the next 50 years with China and figure out sort of who's going to have the advantage and sort of, you know, influence in African countries in terms of their political systems or who's going to have a, a better trade balance or whatever else. But the reality is this Chinese government may not be in power for the next 50 years. Um, it is totally possible, like all authoritarian regimes, at some point the people rise up and they will be overthrown just like Mao did that in 1949 or whatever it was in China in the first place, right? So um, it seems to me that, you know, because all of the sort of scholars like talk about China as sort of the big issue out there, that it's seen as this sort of permanent monolithic thing, and I don't think that's actually the case. Um, One more thought, which is, and this one's more conspiracy theory-esque, but, (laughs) you know, you kind of wonder why. Why are they so focused on cracking down uh, and locking down on COVID, right? What do they know that we don't know? And look, it's it's very unclear. Maybe they know their vaccines don't work? It could be that, but it could also be, look, th- there's a very good argument that the measures that were taken in the U.S. and the Western world to limit the spread of COVID didn't really do that much good and did a tremendous amount of harm in terms of people's livelihoods and mental health and everything else. Um, so... That would argue that that a nationwide crackdown isn't probably the best thing for your people. But I think given that we also now feel pretty comfortable that 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 COVID came from a, a lab in Wuhan, I don't think it was like deliberately stolen or that, but it, it leaked. Who knows what the fuck else they have there? Or by the way, what we have in our labs in the U.S. or Russia or Israel or England or France or India. And China might say, shit, we have some really nasty stuff here that makes COVID look like, you know, a toothache. And our system is not foolproof because COVID got out, right? When whatever way it happened, it happened. And so I also wonder if they're sort of gearing up for a much worse pandemic and saying we're putting kind of a culture and a system in place to protect the Chinese people when that happens. Jesus, Bradley. Okay, now we have to we have to we have to end on a um, uh, less like depressing a, note. Yeah, less de- yeah less depressing. All right, sure. <laughs> so uh, uh, you were going to talk about a couple of movies and, and yeah, books you read. This, yeah. oh, you read a book. I read you, I read a book. Uh, a book where this, the the author is coming to see, speak here. At, yeah, at it's funny. I didn't even know that until I actually walked into the studio this morning. I read like half. Why do you say books. what it is? So it, it, the book's called Your Table Is Ready. Now I'm going to see. This is what I was looking at my phone before when you yelled at me. Um, I know you forgot about it. Michael Chechi Azulina, uh, and he wrote a book about his career as a maitre d and a and a waiter in kind of top restaurants all over New York, and it's kind of kitchen confidential for the front of the house, right? So Kitchen, kitchen Confidential. Is like, it anywhere near as good as Kitchen Confidential? No, no, it's not. But it, it's good. It's enjoyable. It tells a lot of stories that are fun okay. and interesting. And you do get a perspective of the people who, especially for New Yorkers, you know, I eat out in restaurants all of the time. Here's the mindset of the people who are bringing you dinner, bringing you to your table, whatever it is. And so at least it gives you a little more insight into how not to be a total asshole in these situations, <laughs> right? Good. Although my, my go-to is just tip tremendous amounts of money. And then yeah, and then they don't fine. care what yeah. big asshole you yeah, are. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but it was a fun book. 
Uh, if you're interested kind of in the restaurant world, he is here on December 6th, I believe at 7 p.m., speaking at P&T Network, reading from his book. So uh, certainly encourage people if you like to that kind of stuff to read the book. Yeah, I think I've got something that night, but but I would that was something I would go to if I could. Right. Um, so anyway. Give us one movie, book. just one. Pick well, one here's movie. the thing, and I want to no, I, I want to do it just for this year. I'm going oh to. So I saw two movies. I saw The Menu and then I with my sister, and then I saw The Glass Onion, which was the Knives Out sequel with my kids. Uh-huh. And... The Menu is almost a horror movie to a certain extent. Glass Onion oh, interesting. Is, you and your sister are just off to a horror movie together. Yeah. Glass Onion is at a mall in New Jersey. Glass Onion <laughs> is sort of a whodunit, kind of fun, fine for kids movie. But what's interesting is when I thought about it, they were kind of the same movie, which is in, the, in both of these movies, I won't give any spoilers, but people go to an island. Uh, in the menu, it's to eat at this sort of the world's best restaurant. In Glass Onion, it's to go to this incredible party. Uh, they get to the island, and it turns out they've been pre-selected because of their misdeeds in life, for which they will now ha- be held accountable and punished. Um, and then the menu, it just gets wildly violent and crazy, but it's a really good movie. Glass Onion's a, a, a little lighter and more fun. But, but, it, but in each case, it was, you know, you can't get away with it forever, and ultimately, you will be held accountable. And interestingly, they both used kind of islands and violence and a bunch of other stuff to make the same point. So I don't know if I would have thought about this if I hadn't seen the movies two consecutive days in a row. Um, but I like both of them a lot. If you're looking for a movie with your kids, Glass Onion was great. If I'm um, going to see one, me, which one do I see? The menu uh, or the, the Glass man, Onion? You should see the menu. Okay. It's highly disturbing, just so you know. <laughs> but I think it's an excellent I love movie. highly disturbing. Yeah. So, all right, we got anything else to cover? Uh, I think that's it. Till next week. All right, man. See you next week. Bye. Bye.